just never thought I'd be in this situation. Yeah, me neither. It's really weird, and... I mean, it's something that I've heard about happening. I know it's a thing. I know old apartment buildings get torn down, but I never thought I'd be living at one. Same. And it... It's weird because we've talked about this, like, just conversationally of, like, oh, I wonder how long it is till they tear this down and put up something new. We're in the old apartment complex in the area that's just getting lots of new, fancy luxury ones built. (laughs) And we joked about it being torn down, and now it's, like, it's a reality. Yeah. So, um... Uh, so hi, hi, everyone. Yes, hello. Um, this is Blood and Wine. I am Brittany. I'm Tyler. And we just found out today that a zoning permit was approved for our apartment complex to be yeah. uh, rezoned and torn down. I know, which is weird. I um, I don't know. Again, we've talked about this because, I mean, it again, we're the old apartment complex in the area, and the area is going through huge gentrification, which I have very um, mixed feelings about. I don't know. I feel like there's a right way to make a neighborhood nicer with keeping the culture still keeping yeah the like everything at cost level that people who have lived there for decades can still afford but is safer and yeah. then there's other ways where people take these neighborhoods and just bulldoze everything put up expensive ass apartments price everyone out yeah and it's like what the fuck well and to be honest we're already almost being priced out of this apartment complex like it just for what it is because yes it is older uh it's it's quite pricey for that but yeah it was interesting so someone came to tyler's door today to talk about a neighborhood like tenants meeting yeah and so then he calls me and tells me about it. And once we started looking, there's been stuff in the newspaper about this for, for the last year or so. Yeah. Um, and we've both, yeah, both was, been in our uh, apartments here for um, that time, but I had no idea this was in the works. And like today. T- yeah, today city council approved the zoning. So I don't know how long it takes for them to tear either. it down or or at least to evict everyone so they can tear it down evict everyone make sure they've gotten out give us notice because it at least has to be 30 days i can't see it being any shorter than that i don't know the legal like legally how long it needs to be but i i it has to be at least 30 days it has to be at least 30 but yeah it's just so bizarre i know so bizarre and i i mean by the time you all listen to this episode i will have moved i'm actually moving a week from now yeah so i personally am not being affected but i am potentially depending on how long it takes i don't know it's weird it is so that was just a very interesting thing to yeah learn about it happened about an hour ago so that's why (laughs) super super fresh on Um, our minds and yeah, I don't really know how to deal with that information just yet. Me neither. Um, uh, well, thankfully, you don't have to deal with it. I mean, fair. That is fair. But still, I'm concerned for you <laughs> and also concerned for the people who live Everyone here. Everyone here. I mean, I know. They're, the person who has the apartment next to mine, apparently, it was open when I was moving in. But before that, he'd lived there like eight to ten years. Like, yeah. that was his home. And... 
I'm sure there are multiple people like that, multiple families in this complex that have been been here here for for a long time. Years. Yeah. And just being told like, nope, sorry, go. And I'm like, well, fuck, you've built your life here. And I mean, yeah, it comes with the territory of not owning your home, but like, or not owning where you live, but shit. But still, it's not something you ever expect to happen. No. So. Anyways, um, off that topic, I don't. I don't know how to transition it, but I do want to talk a little bit about Patreon. Yes. So that's the very rough transition that y'all get. Sorry about that. But um, I just want to let y'all know that you should check out our Patreon. We have so many amazing Patreon supporters that are helping us make this podcast a reality. Absolutely. And and it's listeners like you that really keep this podcast going. So if yeah. you're interested in joining our Patreon network, uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. And there are different benefits associated with it. Anything from handwritten letters to being the director of an episode where you get to pick the topic of an episode we're going to do. Which we love when our Patreoners pick our topics. Oh my They're God. always like yes. so cool and ones like that we wouldn't have thought ones of. That, yeah, ones that would never come to my mind. But on our Patreon, we also have our murder mini episodes, which are Patreon only yes. episodes we release bi-weekly. It is just a way to hear more of the podcast Yeah, um, when you... Wind up binging all of them, and you're like, I want more. And you need more. There's Patreon. more. There's, There's more. There's more. So, also, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever uh, podcasting platform you're listening to. If there's the abilities to subscribe and turn on notifications, do that. Our episodes come out every Tuesday. Um, so, be sure to subscribe and don't miss out. Yeah. Um. Well, we actually have a really big episode for you guys today, so I'm going to pass it over to Ty, who's going to just go ahead and jump into the topic. All right. So this is a topic I chose, and it's one that I am very passionate about personally. Um, yeah. We've, we've mentioned it many times in previous episodes, and it's one that I think definitely deserves a full episode. And to be completely honest, it's one that I have pushed back on multiple times because it's a difficult one. It's, yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I was telling Brittany just a few minutes ago that this was the first time when researching my case that I've teared up. Yeah. And... God, that makes us sound insensitive. I know, but But it's... I get what you're saying. Well, it's like when you're researching, it's a different mindset that you put into it. It's more... um, Fact finding and yeah. putting the the story together and sharing the information and, and what um, what's most important about mm-hmm. it to get out of each case. Well, because there but, have been multiple episodes, and I'm sure our listeners can tell when my voice catches. There have been multiple episodes that I've teared up when retelling it, but oh, usually yeah. the research part of it not so much. This one was hard, and yeah. this is going to be a hard episode. So, yes. um, I mean. I honestly, right now, I do. This is one of the episodes I do want to have a trigger warning for because it is very violent, very graphic, covers violence against children, and is something that is also very important to talk about today. Yeah, and is something that need needs to be talked about now. Um, and the topic is mass shootings. Yes, which are. All too familiar 
in today's world. Yeah. I feel as if, I believe last weekend, uh, for listeners, will be a few weeks ago for you, there were five mass shootings yeah. in a weekend across the United States. Which is just insane. And yeah. And one more thing. I just feel like if you think there's not a gun problem in this country, please open your eyes. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why you can't see that there's a problem. There's a huge problem. And and even if you're one of those people that's like, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, it's because people who don't need guns in their hands have guns in their hands. Because yeah. there's no checks and balances system that we've put into place. No. People can just go buy a gun. No. And what's more mind-blowing about all of this is... There are things that are almost universally supported, like in the 80s and 90s percent of people support, such as universal background checks yes. when you buy a gun, and yet movement isn't being made no. on that front. And I mean, no, I don't want to say that. Movement absolutely is being made, but the laws are not being written at a federal level where they need to be. Right. And I am not saying take away all the guns. Just because I personally don't like guns, don't want to own one, doesn't mean I think that should be the case for everyone. I'm just saying we need to make sure people who have guns can be responsible and and Absolutely. have them. I think that you have to take a test and get a license to drive a car. Why not for you a gun? You have to have car insurance if you're going if you wind up damaging someone's property or injuring someone i don't understand why there isn't some kind of mandatory training classes mandatory check-ins in the united states with firearms because it's something that has been very successful in other countries and i don't know why so many people have to continue dying so we can preserve this gun culture that shouldn't either. be there. Anyways, either. yeah. So I'm going to jump into the topic, give a little more background on it. The yes. sources I used for this were the Washington Post and the National Center for Victims of Crime. So in the United States, mass shootings are the most common and most closely tracked type of mass casualty event. The Congressional Research Service defines mass shootings as Events where more than four people are killed with a firearm within one event and in one or more locations in close proximity. Yeah. Which is a very narrow definition. It is. Because there's not a standard definition for what a mass shooting is. Right. And so using this definition only, which excludes shootings where the death toll was less than four, shootings tied to gang disputes or robberies that went awry, domestic shootings that took place in private homes, shootings where it was in multiple locations. Like, again, this definition excludes a lot. Yes. But even still, there have been at least 162 mass shootings since 1966 in the United States. That is... No, oh, I don't even know how to react to that number. Yeah, because, and it, it blows my mind because with it being such a narrow definition, there are so many that aren't counted that are absolutely mass shootings. But that for some reason, since there's no the, real definition yeah. or different definitions, they don't get in that toll. Yeah. Which, not that I want to raise that toll, but if it's higher, I mean, I feel I mean, like that would just speak even louder. You yeah. would hope. You would hope. 
So the death toll from these 162 shootings is 1,153. The people who have been killed come from nearly every race, religion, and socioeconomic background. The ages range from the unborn to the elderly. And of those, 189 were children and teenagers. And in addition to those killed, thousands of survivors are left with devastating injuries, shattered families, and psychological scars. Yeah. More than half, 57% of all recorded mass shootings have occurred within the past 10 years. More than half? More than half. 57%. Oh my god. Yeah. In the last 10 years, as in 2009 to now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, again, this is going to be a very heavy episode. I needed wine hours ago, so let's get into the wine. Yes. So, the wine we're going to have today, I did what I don't normally do, and I picked a white. It's the Aves de Lourdes, a 2017 Sauvignon Blanc. Um, The... Bougier family is a winemaking institution in France's Loire Valley, and they've been making Sauvignon Blanc since 1885. Damn. The Loire Valley is 75 plus miles of vineyards, and they offer a wide array of wines, both white and red, but they are most famous for their Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. So this one, this 2017, is an exceptionally good vintage. It has ripeness, concentration, depth, complexity, and wonderful freshness. And it's one that is up to par with some of the world's best Sauvignon Blancs, Hmm. which is interesting. I don't know about you. I've never had a Sauvignon Blanc from France. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. I've never had one from France. My favorite Sauvignon Blancs and some of the highest regarded Sauvignon Blancs in the world come from the Marlborough region of New Zealand. Yes. So this will be very interesting. I love New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. So I, this will be interesting to compare. Yes. And when we open it, the aromas are going to be ripe citrus notes with a bit of a grassy edge. Mm. And the taste is supposed to be bursting with a zesty lime citrus notes and refreshing mineral character. Um, when it comes to what foods to eat with it, it's really, really good with goat cheese. Okay. So. That sounds nice. I know. It sounds really good. I love how the soil and the minerals in the soil really, like, audibly, but the word for taste, I don't know what that word is, change the flavor. They do, yeah. Because I think of, like, the Valley Mills wine that we had, um... I don't know, maybe 10 episodes ago or so. Maybe not that long. No, um, but I was just thinking of that too. Because the it had bedrock. a very, because of the limestone, it had a very calcite, calcium. We didn't do that one for the episode. Did we just we not? had that. No, we oh, did the okay. rosé for the episode. We did. But we also but had. But we talked about um, their bedrock. Yeah, their bedrock wine that had a just a very interesting flavor that I'd never had before that came from the limestone. So I'm very interested to see this mineral taste in this Sauvignon Blanc. Me too. All right, well, I'm getting into this wine now. Yes. I'm going to need this for my case. Oh, same. Also, though, this is probably the most excited I've been to try Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, I forget that you're not, (laughs) like, when you do white, you want a Chardonnay. Yeah. See, Sauvignon Blanc is my favorite white wine. It's honestly probably my second favorite wine right after a cab. Yeah. All right. 
Oh, it's so light. I don't know why I always anticipate wines being a little, like, white wines being a little more yellow, but it's because I drink Chardonnay. Fair. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. That is really good. It has less of the citrusy yeah. than the New Zealand, mm-hmm. so it doesn't have that key that, like, lime pie like bite. Yeah, that like punch of grass and it's like, more lemongrass sharpness. Yeah, it doesn't have the lemongrass. It's more like peaches. Mm-hmm. It's like peaches. That's why I like it. Yeah, it definitely has like a stone fruit aroma and flavor. Okay, for me. This may be one of the best Sauvignon Blancs I've ever had. It's a really good one. I can absolutely see why my research told me that this was one of the wines that was really up there and like mm-hmm. comparable to some of the best. And yeah. I mean, it's, you know, $16 a bottle or so. Yeah. It's, so it's not our usual yeah. lower range. But, but again, this is good. some of my favorite Sauvignon Blancs are... Honestly, in the under 10 range, in the yeah. 6 to $8 range, you can find a lot of wonderful New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs in that price range. And if you've never had a Sauvignon Blanc, it is the perfect summer wine. Like, oh, gosh, Sipping yes. in the sun with this your big rose. old sun hat. Oop. Yeah. Oop. Yeah. That was but, me um, drink, sipping my wine. Oop. Beautiful. All right. So one thing I do want to mention before I get into my case is that I actually covered One of the, well, the largest mass shooting in the United States, the 2017 Las Vegas shooting at the Country Music Festival in Las Vegas that killed 57 people and injured over 800. So that was um, uh, in one of our more recent murder minis. Yes. And uh, I hate it. So with that fun intro, I'm going to jump into my case. Yes. Which one did you um, pick? So my case is the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. I had a feeling you were going to pick this one. Yeah. So the sources I used um, were CNN. I used this article extensively uh, throughout mine because it was a very in-depth coverage of the events. Wikipedia, the Miami Herald, and March for Our Lives. So... It was a typical Valentine's Day at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on February 14th, 2018. The school has over 3,000 students and is located in Parkland, Florida, which is an affluent suburb about 30 miles northwest of Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. So that day, teachers are collecting applications for the National English Honor Society Members of the tennis team are raising money with the sale of hoodies, yoga pants, and other items. Classmates are exchanging Valentine's Day carnations that are being sold for a dollar in the cafeteria. And at lunchtime, some of the students are leaving $60 deposits for graduation rings. It's just a day at school. Typical day at high school. Five miles away, Nicholas Cruz was refusing to get out of bed. Cruz, who was 19, lived on this very nice street dotted with tropical plants and lived with a family who'd opened their home to him after the death of his adopted parents. Yeah. The father, James Sneed, normally took Cruz to his adult GED classes on the way to work, but when this Wednesday was different. Cruz eventually made it out of bed that Valentine's Day, 
He exchanged a number of pretty unremarkable text messages with the son of the family that he was staying with, Mm -hmm. and he called an Uber. Mm -hmm. At 2.19 p.m., a gold-colored Uber dropped him off at the school that he used to attend. A school employee recognized him. He'd been expelled for some disciplinary reasons. Yeah, yeah. But now he was back with a two two three caliber AR-15 rifle that he had concealed in a black case. So he's carrying this, like, large black case. Yeah. And they, I don't know, maybe it looks like a musical instrument or something. That or a duffel bag or... Okay. Um, but the employee who recognized him alerted a colleague that, there, you know, this former student is walking purposefully towards one of the school buildings. Ooh, yeah. That's not a way to walk when you are in a suspicious place. Yeah, and at two in the afternoon, walking towards the school. I know, because why the hell would a former student walk up to the school purposefully at two? And also someone who'd been expelled for disciplinary reasons. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Cruz entered the school building from the east stairwell. He pulled the rifle out of its bag and he activated a fire alarm. There'd been a fire drill earlier that day, and the second one was really confusing to everyone, and the students began to scurry out of the classrooms and into the hall where he was. Oh my god. That was when Cruz began the massacre. That's horrifying that he thought, oh, I need an easy way to get everyone out of the rooms. Fire Fire alarm. alarm. He initially targeted people on the first floor, and bursts of semi-automatic fire echoed through the corridors. A freshman named Kelsey Friend and her classmates in their geography class rushed back into the classroom once they heard the shots. Yeah. And her teacher, Scott Beagle, who's 35, unlocked the door for them so they could get inside. He had locked it? Yeah, because he had heard the shooting too and locked locked the the door. door. But when he saw students trying to get back in the classroom, he unlocked it for them. Yeah. And... Kelsey thought that Beagle would follow her inside, but he didn't. As the sound of gunfire grew louder, she wanted to believe that this was just another drill. And, you know, maybe a very realistic one with police officers shooting blanks. Yeah. Does any school do that? I don't think so, but I can... I'm sure in her situation, she's hoping it's literally anything Anything but the reality, of course. Because there were other students that thought they were just firecrackers going off and it might have been just a prank but when beagle's body crumpled to the floor in front of her she realized it was not a drill oh god the first 911 call came at about 2 23 p.m and the shooter's identity was already known yeah he was very well known by staff and by a lot of the students because of his previous behavior issues right I mean, people like that, everyone knows. Yeah. Like, that's... Yeah. And it's it's fucking horrible, but let's be real. When we were in high school, we all knew, like, if there's a shooting, we can guess it's probably that kid. I know. Well, and Columbine was in 99, mm-hmm. and that was just a few years before I entered high school, and it was still relatively fresh... Mm-hmm. It wasn't, so this is going to sound absolutely horrible, but I it was before we knew that was going to become, unfortunately, the yeah. norm. And well, so, you know, kids still... would joke about it and be like, oh, I've, you know, but 
so-and-so would be the next person, which is fucking horrible. It's, I'm not saying I was in, yeah. in that, but this is just like no, but it's all what was going up, on. But at that time, it's an isolated incident. I mean, it, it wasn't, but as far as school shootings go and stuff like that, it was viewed as that. Yeah. Because there wasn't a new school shooting that became the deadliest school shooting every fucking year. I know. So during all this, the students are terrified and they pull out their cell phones. They are taking pictures, sending text messages. They're on Snapchat and Twitter. And they're giving the world a glimpse into all of this as it's unfolding. There's shots of trembling hands, blood-curdling screams, bullet-strewn classrooms, blood-stained floors, and bodies. Oh my god. A freshman, Aiden Minhoff, who was 14, sent his first tweet at 2.59pm. I'm in a school shooting right now. He was hunkered down under a desk in a dark classroom as Cruz was stalking the corridors outside. Yeah. And a couple minutes later, he tweeted again. My school is being shot up and I'm locked inside. I'm fucking scared right now. And this tweet included photos of students that were just huddling on the floor. Oh my god. This is such a different perspective of, of, you know, the age of social and... I mean, this was the way they were getting the word out, just in case the word wasn't already out. There were people all around the world who were notified of and watching the shooting as it was happening. Yeah, which is beyond scary and horrifying. And So, 17-year-old Hannah Carbacci was in her Holocaust history class when a bullet pierced the wall, and she immediately thought of her big sister. Um, who she saw as her protector. So Hannah is hiding under a teacher's desk and texting her 19-year-old sister, Caitlin. She said, Caitlin, there is a shooter on campus. I am not joking. Call 911, please. Send them to Douglas. Caitlin replied, Hannah, what? Are you serious right now? And Hannah replied to that, Caitlin, I'm not joking. They just shot through the walls. Someone in my class is injured. I'm not joking. Call mom and dad. And I listened to um, some 911 calls, and I'm not going to include them in this episode at all. Nor recommend them Um, by any means. But the first, I don't know if it's the first view, but you can hear the students whispering. And the 911 operator's trying to figure out what they're trying to say. And these kids are fucking terrified, whispering, because they don't want to make noise and alert crews of where they're hiding. No, no. They want to stay hidden. And it's almost like I called 911 so you could locate me and hear what's going on, but I can't say words. Yeah. So assistant coach and security guard Aaron Feiss, who was a graduate of the school, put himself between three students and the shooter, which... This act of bravery surprised no one. Yeah. This is what Mr. Feist would do. Yeah. And Feist was shot and he died. Protecting the students. Yeah. So as shots are ringing out, 17-year-old Colton Hobb ushered 60 to 70 students to shelter in the Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps room or the Junior ROTC. You know, this is... Sorry, I know I keep interrupting Mm -hmm. you, but this is one of those times when you can tell that some kids aren't kids. Like, Mm -hmm. this is such an adult thing to do and to just not be absolutely terrified. I mean, I'm sure he was absolutely terrified, but not let that fear keep you from just trying to help and do whatever you can. 
Well, and it's one of those things that because of the world we live in and all of these kids, I mean, this happened in 2018. They were all born after Columbine. They were. So shootings so were a thing. I mean, they went to school. Active shooter drills, all that kind of shit. Yeah. They went to school with, this is something they've prepared for since they entered elementary school. That makes me so sad. And I prepared for, feared. Yeah. But it's been an active part of their minds. You have active shooter drills every quarter, just like you do fire drills or tornado drills or in other areas, earthquake drills. You have active shooter drills. Yep. So these 70 people are hiding in the junior ROTC room and they shielded themselves behind sheets of Kevlar that the junior ROTC used for marksmanship practice. Yeah. Which Kevlar is what's uh, what bulletproof vests are made of. A teacher, Melissa Fokowski, hid in a large closet with nearly 20 students that she'd brought in from the hallway. Some of them were crying. Others are calling or texting family with words of gratitude and love. Things like, I love you, mom and dad, because... They don't know if they'll ever see him again. Yeah. At this point, Cruz was not done. He roamed the first floor halls before going to the second floor. He shot a victim in another room. And on the third floor, he dropped his rifle and his bag. And then he ran out of the building, blending in with the rest of the students and staff who are pouring out of the school. Oh my god. So the officers that were responding to the shooting suspected this might be a tactic that the shooter would use to try to get away. Because... They know the shooter's a teenager. They right, know he's who young. he is. Yeah. They know it's Nicholas Cruz. And they know he could very much blend in with a crowd of terrified children running. Ab- absolutely. So an officer radioed to the dispatch, someone checking the IDs of these kids before they get up and leave the area. And later there was another transmission. Attention all units. Be advised. A repeat of the last instruction. Juveniles being loaded onto the buses are going to park. The IDs need to be checked of the juveniles before they get on the buses. Make sure that Nicholas Cruz isn't part of this group. But Cruz slipped away. So he just got out of school and slipped Mm -hmm. away. He wasn't getting on a bus. No, he was running with most of the other kids. I mean, this is, again, a school of 3,000 people. Yeah, I honestly, I understand their instruction, but the reality of that, like, no, come on, dude. I'm sure they tried as hard as they could, but that wasn't going to happen. No. And it's horrifying because we both went to high schools with more than 2,000 people. We went to huge high schools. Yeah. I don't know. It was a fear I had all the time in high school that a gunman was going to walk in. I hate that. So Cruz left. He bought a drink at a Subway that was nearby inside a Walmart, and later he went to McDonald's to sit for a little bit. All during that, police helicopters are buzzing overhead, and students are being reunited outside of the school with their parents. Yeah. Some of the students did remain on lockdown and not taking any chances. Some of them called 911 before letting the SWAT team members enter. I mean, SWAT team's at the door, and they're like, no, we're not opening this door. We're calling 911 to make sure you're actually the SWAT team. Absolutely. Which is so smart. That is really smart. So They weren't going to be fooled by the shooter pretending to be SWAT. Yeah. So a police dispatcher um, asked, a student in classroom 1255 said someone's pushing on her door. Is that a police officer? Are there any units pushing on 1255? And an officer responded, yes, yes, 1255. That's going to be us. You want them to open it, or do you want me to tell them to stand down? Tell her to open the door. Have her open her door right now. 
because at this time they're trying to evacuate everyone they can't they don't know if he's still in the school right so as student mazel belusia evacuated she put her book bag on her back just in case she got shot from behind thinking oh. her books might slow the bullet enough yeah oh my god and she ran towards students and teachers and jumped a fence before police escorted her to a group of students that were assembling near the Walmart. She could see her mom, but she was suspicious of the people around her. She said, I didn't know if any of them were shooters or not. I felt very uncomfortable because anybody can be a shooter. Oh, they thought the truth. Like yeah. the... You you like to think, like we were saying earlier, how you would look at someone and be like, oh, if this school gets shut up, it's it's them. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. Like, it's no. really not. Because anyone, there are so many. I mean, we've done enough stories where the unsuspected person is, Absolutely. does something and you're like, wait, what the, what? Yeah. So I totally, wow, that's so real. So a police officer made contact with Sneed, who is the father who'd taken in Cruz after his mom died. Yeah. And Sneed said that he'd spoken with Cruz, who told him that he was at the McDonald's near the high school campus. Because he, you know, the dad's probably seen this on the news and it's like, oh my god, Nick, that was Nicholas's old high school. I'm, I'm sure, he, I mean, he's not there, but is he safe? Yeah. Um, so he calls his son like I'm at the McDonald's near the high school. Nearly 80 minutes after the first 911 call, a police officer from nearby Coconut Creek spotted a young man walking along the side of a residential road, and the description and clothing matched the shooter that they were looking for. Officer Michael Leonard said he looked like a typical high school student. For a quick moment, I thought, could this be the person? Is this who I need to stop? Leonard pulled Cruz over, who was wearing a maroon polo shirt with the school's eagle mascot on the sleeve, and Cruz surrendered without incident. At 3.41 p.m., the call over the radio came. We have the suspect detained. 17 people were killed, and 17 people were wounded but survived their gunshot wounds. Oh, God. Three remained in critical condition the day after the shooting, and one remained by the second day. Twelve of the victims died inside the building, three died just outside the building on school premises, and two of them died in the hospital. And the 14 students and three staff members that were killed are Alyssa Alhadef, who was 14, Scott Beagle, who was 35, Martin Duke, who was 14, Nicholas Dwaret, who was 17, Aaron Feiss, who was 37, Jamie Gutenberg, who was 14, Chris Hickson, who is 49, Luke Hoyer, who is 15, Cara Lofren, who is 14, Gina Montalto, who is 14, Joaquin Oliver, who is 17, Elena Petty, who is 14, Meadow Pollock, who is 18, Helena Ramsey, who is 17, Alex Schatzker, who is 14, Carmen Shentrup, who is 16, and Peter Wang, who is 15. For so many 14-year-olds. So many freshmen. Yeah. Must have been in one of the, the areas that he got to first. Yeah, I You know, think, before people knew I something think, was happening. I think there were a lot of freshman classrooms on the first floor yeah. where he entered and started. So, again, geography teacher Scott Beagle was killed after he'd unlocked his classroom to let students enter to hide from the gunman. Aaron Feiss was killed 
while shielding two students. Chris Hickson, who was the school's athletic director, was killed as he ran towards the sound of gunfire and tried to help fleeing students. Student Peter Wang was last seen in his junior ROTC uniform, holding doors open so that others could get out more quickly. Uh, Wang was unable to flee with the students when Cruz appeared and fatally shot him. You know, on the note of the teachers risking their lives and losing their lives to save their students, and when you think of teachers today who are having to prepare for the worst, Mm -hmm. like literally, why the fuck do we not pay them what they're worth? Yeah. I mean, you have people arguing that a teacher making $30,000 a year is too much. Because they get three months off. And it's like, they no, they don't have that time off. They may not be in the school, but it doesn't mean they're off. No. And it, I mean, these are people that are laying down their lives for your children. Yeah. Who see your kids more than you do. Yep. And who are willing to do anything they can for their students. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking shit. It is. How little people care about educators in the U.S. And how underappreciated they are. Yeah. When they're some of the people I'm the most proud of in the whole world. Yeah. The people that shaped me to be the person I am today. Yeah. Most of them are my teachers. Absolutely. I mean, there there are a couple teachers that I had in high school that I'm still friends with on Facebook because of just the impact they had on my life. Well, and shit, my... First grade teacher still knows who I am. Yeah. And I'm like, Mine holy does too. shit. She met mama like a couple years ago. Um, but but they remember but, yeah. like the students make an impact on their lives and they make an impact on students' lives. Like it's just, anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. Like just hearing the phenomenal things that the teachers and fellow students were doing for one another in this situation, there should just be more appreciation out there. Absolutely. So Wang was commended for his actions, and he was described as a hero. A White House petition was circulated calling for him to be buried with full military honors, which I should have explained this before, but ROTC, it's like a military... Training, kind Yeah, of? I would say training for high school age uh, kids who want to go into the military after high school. Uh, they can go through ROTC, which teaches them the respect the authority the just basically how to be in the military yeah um and so the petition was asking for him to be buried with full military honors yeah and at their respective funerals wang elena petty and martin duke were all posthumously honored by the u.s army with the rotc medal for heroism and yang was buried in his junior rotc blues uniform And on February 20th, six days after the shooting, he was given a very rare posthumous admission to the United States Military Academy. You're going to make me cry over here. Yeah. So victim Alyssa Alhadef was the captain of the local soccer team there in Parkland. And on March 7th of 2018, which is about three weeks after the shooting, she was honored by the United States Women's National Soccer Team prior to a game in Orlando. Her teammates and family were all invited to the game and presented with official jerseys that featured Alhadef's name. Meadow Pollock was a senior who was shot four times during the shooting. Oh, God. And as Cruz shot into other classrooms, she crawled to a classroom door but was unable to get inside. 
Kara Lofren was alongside Pollock, and Pollock actually covered Lofren in an attempt to shield her from the bullets. Yeah. Cruz returned to this classroom, located Pollock and Lofren, and discharged his weapon five more times. Oh my god. Killing both of them. The last victim to remain hospitalized was 15-year-old Anthony Borges, who was from Venezuela, and he was finally released on April 4th from the hospital. Wow. He was called the real Iron Man because he was shot five times after he used his body to barricade a door to a classroom where 20 students were inside. Oh my god. And he survived. He is a superhero. Yeah. And so sacrificial yeah i mean he's 15 yeah like i said they're kids but when they need to you know be an adult adults they are absolutely it's like you know i feel like we don't give young people enough credit for having the mental capability of doing things like this and absolutely i'm like i'm sorry this this case shows that they are far more capable than we ever give them credit for absolutely so to shift perspectives a little bit, um, I want to talk a little bit about Nicholas Cruz. So Cruz had behavioral issues since middle school, and he was transferred between schools six times in three years to deal with these problems. Wow. Yeah. In 2014, he was transferred to a school for children with emotional and learning disabilities. And there were reports that he'd made threats against other students. He returned to... Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School two years after this, uh, only to be expelled from the school in 2017 for disciplinary reasons. An email from the school administration was circulated amongst teachers, warning that he'd made threats against other students, and that led the school to ban him from wearing a backpack on campus. Wow, because they were afraid he'd have a gun in it? Yeah. So they were already very concerned about him. Yeah. So psychiatrists had recommended an involuntary admission of Cruz to a residential treatment facility in 2013, and the Florida Department of Children and Families investigated him in September of 2016 because he made some Snapchat posts in which he cut both of his arms (gasps) and said he planned to buy a gun. Oh my god. This is when he's still at the school. Right. And at this time, a school resource officer suggested to have him undergo an involuntary psychiatric examination. Two guidance counselors agreed, but a mental institution did not. State investigators reported that he had depression, autism, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Yeah. And in their assessment, they concluded he was a low risk of harming himself or others. Low risk. He had previously received mental health treatment, but he hadn't received treatment in the year that led up to the shooting. Yeah. The Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel described Cruz's online profiles and accounts as very, very disturbing. They contained pictures and posts of him with a variety of weapons, They included long knives, a shotgun, a pistol, and a BB gun. And the police said that he had extremist views. Social media accounts that were linked to him contained anti-black and anti-Muslim slurs. YouTube comments that were linked to him include, I want to die fighting, killing a shit ton of people. 
There were threats against police officers and the anti-fascist movement and intent to mimic the University of Texas tower shooting. In February of 2017, so one year before the shooting, he legally purchased an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle from a Coral Springs gun store. Um, well, because he was 19. Yeah, so when he bought that, he was 18. And you just let an 18-year-old buy that kind of gun. Yeah. Sorry, who here is not seeing the problem with something like that? Yeah. And, you know, there are some background checks, but they're not universal. No. So there are cases where if someone was denied a gun in one state... Or one district, they can move to another one and buy a gun there. Yeah. There are just so many loopholes and ways for people to it's easy. purchase guns. It's I just mean, easy to get a gun. It, yeah. If I wanted to go buy a gun, I could get one tomorrow. Absolutely. Like, I, and it wouldn't be hard. So at his in- initial arraignment, the day after the shootings, Cruz was charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder and was held without bond. On March 7th of 2018... A grand jury indicted Cruz on 34 charges, 17 counts of first-degree murder, and 17 accounts of attempted first-degree murder. He was arraigned on March 13th, and the prosecution filed notice of their intent to seek the death penalty. Oh, God. On February 21st of 2019, today, when we're recording this episode... The judge overseeing the case asked attorneys to consider January 2020 as the tentative goal for a trial date. Yeah, saw that when I was doing research. It's like, that's from three hours ago. Today. So before I end this, I want to shift focus from the attack to some of the things that have happened since. Because when I tell you these kids are some of the most inspiring people I've ever heard of, they are just, they're some of the best people I've ever seen. Yeah. Following the school shooting, Cameron Kasky, who was a junior at the school, and his classmates announced the March for Our Lives, which is a student-led demonstration in support of stronger gun violence prevention measures. It took place in Washington, D.C. on March 24th of 2018, with over 880 sibling events throughout the United States and around the world. Which is amazing. Protesters urged for universal background checks on all gun sales, raising the federal age of gun ownership and possession to 21, closing of the gun show loophole, a restoration of the 1994 federal assault weapons ban, and a ban on the sale of high-capacity magazines and bump stocks in the United States. Yeah. Turnout was estimated to be between 1.2 and 2 million people in the U.S., making it one of the largest protests in American history and the largest student-led protests since the Vietnam War protests. Wow. So also joining the march efforts were Alex Wind who, along with four other friends, created the Never Again campaign, Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg. All of them were survivors of the shooting. Yeah. So I want to end my case with reading the mission statement for March for Our Lives. I love that. Not one more. We cannot allow one more person to be killed by senseless gun violence. We cannot allow one more person to experience the pain of losing a loved one. 
We cannot allow one more family to wait for a call or text that never comes. We cannot allow the normalization of gun violence to continue. We must create a safe and compassionate nation for our youth to grow up in. In the days after the tragedy in Parkland, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School students strive to ensure that what happened at their school never happens again. As a nation, we continue to witness tragedy after tragedy, yet our politicians remain complacent. The Parkland students, along with young leaders of all backgrounds from across the country, refuse to accept this passivity and demand direct action to combat this epidemic. Gun violence does not always look the same. This issue includes mass shootings, suicides, domestic abuse, violence on our streets, and more. It is vital to remember that our youth and communities of color are disproportionately affected by this violence, and we must focus more on preventing trauma than comparing it. Bullets do not discriminate, and our response to violence cannot either. No one should not have to be exposed to such trauma, as all lives are equally precious. Just because a bullet has not touched your life does not mean you or any of our American communities are safe. Our country must make the safety of its citizens a number one priority, and we must hold those in power accountable for perpetuating the root causes of this violence. Millions came together for the largest global protests in history to remind the world that young people have the power to drive real change. Every day since March 24, 2018, we have been expanding our coalitions and working with new advocates in order to create a movement that ends the violence and elects morally just leaders into office. We will not stop our advocacy until we see the change we demand. That's really, really powerful. And that is a movement that is led by survivors yeah. of this shooting. They are a phenomenal group of people and have such a phenomenal mission that that I'm sure a lot of our listeners, um, you know, maybe took part in one of those mm-hmm. um, protests around the country because there were so many. I know we had one here in Austin. Yeah. And, um, and March 24th, 2019 is just around the corner. It and is. I know there will be more protests. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, thank you for sharing that case. I know that was really difficult, but I think yeah. that was a lot of very, very important information and um, very powerful. Yeah. A couple of things I wanted to add before we go into your case is, is that based on another definition, since 2013, there has been only one full calendar week, the week of January 5th, 2014 without a mass shooting. Oh my god. Yeah. What? That's not okay. That's not okay at all. It could be one a month and that's not okay. It could be one a year and it's not okay. And as of February 14th of this year, the one year anniversary of the shooting, there have been nearly 350 mass shootings in the U.S., nearly one a day. And again, this is a different definition than we used in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, This one is shootings with a mass number of casualties overall and since there's no definition to mass shootings um i just one a day i have no words but i can very much see why you really didn't want to do this topic 
Yeah, I didn't. It's just, it's so real because like you were just saying, it's something that's happening every week, all Mm -hmm. the time, one a day on average. Like that's just, it's not okay. And we have to stop just having thoughts and prayers and thinking that's going to do anything because you know what? God asked you to knock on the door and it will open. That means you have to take action for doors to open. He's not just going to open them for you. So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, mine is also really horrible and terrible and awful. Let's get into it. I also did a school shooting, but mine is from quite a while ago. Um, I did the UT tower shooting that happened on August 1st, 1966. 53 years ago. 53 years ago. I find it interesting that you mentioned um, that Nicholas Cruz was influenced by this and wanted to recreate recreate this. But also there's um, potential evidence that Stephen Paddock, who was in the Las Vegas massacre, was also influenced by this. God. So for this whole, um, for all of my research, I just used Wikipedia. It was insanely thorough and so... Charles Whitman was 25 years old, and he was studying architectural engineering. He had been admitted to the University of Texas at Austin in 1961 on a scholarship from the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program. Um, While he was at UT, he met and married his wife, Kathleen. Whitman struggled with gambling and bad grades, and he ended up losing his scholarship in 1963. Mm -hmm. So before the attack... He had sought some professional help for overwhelming violent impulses, which included fantasies about shooting people from the tower. So this is something he had been thinking of and even talked to people about, like professional help. But this is the 60s and mental health, I mean, unfortunately, isn't recognized today in a lot of cases. So, But it really wasn't back then. It really wasn't back then. Yeah, it was very much unrecognized. So on August 1st, 1966, between about midnight and 3 a.m., Whitman killed his mother, Margaret Whitman, and his wife, Kathleen Whitman. In a note, he professed his love for both women, saying he'd killed them to spare them future humiliation, and in the case of his mother, suffering. Later that morning, Whitman rented a hand truck and cashed about $250 worth of bad checks at a bank. And that that equates to about 1900 in uh, 2018. Damn. He then drove to a hardware store where he purchased a universal M1 carbine, two additional ammunition magazines, and eight boxes of ammunition. And he just told the cashier that he planned to hunt wild hogs. At a gun shop, he purchased four more carbine magazines six additional boxes of ammunition, and a can of gun-cleaning solvent. At Sears, he purchased a Sears model 60-12-gauge semi-automatic shotgun before returning home. So he went multiple places and just bought a shit ton of guns. Yeah. He sawed off the barrel and the buttstock of the shotgun, and then he packed it into his footlocker, which is like a um, cube-shaped container that military personnel would use. Yeah. Um... Along with a Remington 700 6mm bolt action hunting rifle and a 35 caliber pump rifle, a 30 caliber carbine, a 9mm lugger pistol, what a Glesky. Yeah, sorry, this is a lot of different gun words. This means something to someone, not me. Uh, to me, this sounds like a fuck ton of guns. Yeah. A Glesky Berescia 25 caliber pistol, 
a Smith & Weston M19 357 Magnum revolver, and more than 700 rounds of ammunition. So he just, uh, like, put everything in this footlocker. Like a fucking militia's worth. Everything. Of wo- God. He also packed Big food. footlocker. I know, it's it's large. Um, he also packed food, coffee, vitamins, dexedrine, etc., earplugs, jugs of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, a machete, three knives, a transistor radio, toilet paper, a razor, and a bottle of deodorant. He planned to be up there for a long time. Yes. He was making sure he had everything he needed for a stakeout, essentially. He was going to be there for as long as he needed to be. He put khaki coveralls over his shirt and jeans. So he was prepared for the worst. Yeah. Um, at approximately 11.25 a.m., Whitman reached the University of Texas at Austin, where he showed false research assistant identification to obtain a parking permit. Because, again, he was a former student, and he's a young guy. Yeah. Of course. This is Sure, he's a research assistant. Yeah. Whitman wheeled his equipment toward the main building, because, yeah, he had to wheel it. Like, it was yeah. too big, like, too heavy with all the shit he had. Uh, he wheeled his equipment toward the main building of the university. When he entered the main building, and the main building is the one that has the tower. Yeah. So, um, as I go through this, some of these things are going to be really familiar to you because we do happen to live in Austin, which was one thing while researching this case. And I'm like, oh, shit, I know exactly where that is. Yep. I've been to that store. That's horrifying. Like, oh. things like that. Well, and it's horrifying because, like, I know this case generally, like what happened. Yeah. Um, and from my office, you see the UT Tower. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I think of when I see it. I know. I can see it from my office as well. Um, you, it, it's such a prominent feature of the skyline. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's t- like the tallest thing north of the Capitol. Yeah. Um, which it's all downtown. Yeah. Which it's interesting to me because I don't, I don't know why, but I don't ever think of UT as a campus that's downtown, but it is. Like, it absolutely is. The campus is right there. I would walk to the Blanton Museum on, like, a work break or whatever just to go, because it was right in my office when I used to work downtown. Well, the the distance from, like, the commercial center to campus is about the same as one side of campus to the other. Yeah. I mean, and it's right there. Yeah. So... He wheeled his equipment toward the main building of the university, and he entered, and he found that the elevator didn't work. An employee named Vera Palmer activated it for him, so I guess you had to have, like, a special key card or something. Yeah. Whitman thanked Palmer, stating, thank you, ma'am, before repeatedly saying, you don't know how happy that makes me, that she got the elevator to work. Exiting the elevator on the 27th floor, he hauled the dolly and equipment up a flight of stairs to a hallway, from which another flight led to rooms um, around the observation deck. Mm -hmm. So at that point, before this, you know, next flight to the observation deck, he encountered a receptionist, Edna Townsley. Whitman knocked Townsley to the floor and split the back of her skull with his rifle butt. Then he struck her above the left eye before dragging her behind a couch. At this time... Cheryl Botts and Don Walden entered the reception area from the observation deck, so they're like coming down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Walden noticed Whitman's guns and assumed that he was going to the observation deck to shoot pigeons. Whitman smiled, hi, how are you, as they went down the elevator. Because he had already dragged Townsley behind the desk, like the yeah. guns here. He then pushed a desk across the entrance from the stairway. Also, just, you would never, if you saw someone with a gun 
on a campus, you would never think something so innocent as like, oh, good. Yeah, there's lots of pigeons up there. He's going to clear them out. I know. That's not. Well, that shows how unheard of this was. Yeah. Because I feel like this had to be one of the first school shootings. I think it was up there. I know there were um, school attacks in the past in, I want to say, the late 1800s or early 1900s. There was the Bath School Massacre where a, I want to say he was a farmer. This guy was angry at, I think, the like local government yeah planted bombs underneath the school building oh my god and blew them up and then like shot people as they ran out of the burning building it, it was like one of the deadliest school attacks ever i think he killed like over 40 people oh my god students and teachers and he did shoot them but i think the majority of it was from the bomb but a school shooting in this context i think this was one of the first yeah yeah. Or the one of the most high profile early ones. Absolutely. So um again he so he pushes a desk across the entrance from the stairway. So, mm. you know, no one else can come in. MJ Gabor, his wife Mary Frances Gabor, and their sons Mike and Mark were in Austin visiting MJ's sister, Margaret Lamport, and her husband, William Lamport. Mm-hmm. So around 11.45 a.m., they were climbing the stairs from the 27th floor when they encountered the desk that Whitman had placed in the entrance to the reception area. Mm-hmm. And as Mike and Mark, like, squeezed past the desk, like, you know, why is this desk here? Whitman came forward and fired his shotgun. He hit Mike in the shoulder and Mark in the head and then fired down the stairs, striking Margaret and Mary Frances. MJ and William, further down the stairs, were not hit and they went for help at Mike's urging. Yeah. So, like, Mike's, like, yelling, go get help, go get help. Whitman then shot Townsley in the head before exiting to the observation deck. So, you know, he beat her over the head and she's laying back there and he just went ahead and shot her. Jesus. And I, um, one thing for listeners note to kind of visualize this at this time, other than the nearby state capitol dome, which counts, but doesn't really, the UT tower is the tallest building in Austin. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This was before downtown had all the skyscrapers and any of that. So this was... Like, the focal point of the city other than the capital. Yeah. I mean, and this was... You could see forever from there. Yeah. Um. So, Mike Gabor's injuries left him unable to complete his Air Force training. And Mary Frances was left paralyzed from the neck down and legally blind from her injuries. <sighs> At 11.45 a.m., Whitman began shooting from the observation deck 231 feet above the ground, targeting people on the campus and on a section of Guadalupe Street, which people call Guadalupe. Um, I just have problems with pronouncing it that way, even though it's like Austin correct. Yeah, fair. Don't at me, Austin. It's wrong. Um, this area is known as the Drag, which was home to coffee shops, bookstores, and other student hangouts. Yeah. And I used to take Guad every single day on my commute to work. Like, I am eerily familiar with this area that this happened. Claire Wilson was one of the first people that Whitman shot from the tower. And one thing to note, he had such insane accuracy with his shots. Like he was very much a trained shooter. Yeah. Um, So Claire and Thomas Ekman were leaving the student union when Claire, who was also eight months pregnant, 
was shot in the abdomen at 11.47 a.m. Her baby was killed. Ekman went to her aid, and he was shot in the chest and died instantly. A passerby, Rita Starpattern, lay next to Claire for an hour, comforting her and kept her conscious. Oh my god. Eventually, James Love, John Artley Fox, and others left their protected location while Whitman was still shooting and carried Claire to safety and also retrieved Ekman's body. Which, that shows such care. Yeah. When you know someone is dead to go get their body and risk your life just to not have their body laying there. Yeah. Um, Wilson remained hospitalized for three months, but did survive. Robert Boyer was the third person shot from the tower, and he was struck in the lower back. Devru Hoffman was shot next in the arm, and he fell to the ground, feigning death, hoping that he wouldn't get shot again. Yeah. Secretary Charlotte Derashori came under fire as she ran to help Boyer and Huffman, and she took refuge behind a concrete flagpole for an hour and a half, and she ended up not being injured. David Matson, Roland Elk, and Tom Herman were walking to lunch when a bullet blew off part of Matson's wrist. Elk was struck in the arm by shrapnel, and then in the leg by a bullet when he left cover to bring uh, Matson to safety. Yeah. And then a man named Homer Kelly was shot in the leg while helping the three boys into his shop. Thomas Ashton was shot in the chest on his way to meet Matson and Elk for lunch, which is just, that's horrifying. It's like he just happened to be in the vicinity and also got shot when he was going to meet these three guys that had been shot. Nancy Harvey and Ellen Evgenides were leaving the tower for lunch when they heard shots. They returned inside where a guard told them that it was safe to leave again. What the fuck? I'm sure he thought it was. I mean, yeah, I know I know he had no malicious intent, but God. But don't tell someone to leave until you absolutely know. Yeah. About a hundred yards from the tower, Harvey was shot in the hip, and Ellen was struck in the left leg by the ricochet of the same shot. Alec Hernandez was shot in the leg around eleven forty five while delivering newspapers on his bicycle near the Westmall entrance. He was a high school student. God fucking high school student yeah who just happened to be in the area on his bike delivering newspapers god soon after karen griffith was shot in the shoulder and chest um, and her right lung was pierced she died seven days later she was also a high school student thomas carr was hit in the spine while coming to griffith's aid and he died approximately an hour later at about eleven fifty-five a.m David Gunby was returning to the library for a forgotten book when a shot passed through his upper left arm and entered his abdomen, severing his small intestine. During surgery, it was discovered that Gunby had only one functioning kidney to begin with, and so now the other one had been severely damaged. So he was in great pain for the rest of his life. In 2001, he died one week after discontinuing dialysis, and his death was officially ruled a homicide. Yeah. The Littlefields, Brenda and Adrian, had been married for nine days, and they were leaving the tower when Brenda was shot in the hip and Adrian was struck in the back as he bent over her. Claudia Rudd and her boyfriend Paul Suntag had just run into Clara Wheeler, who was one of their friends, when they heard shots. They took refuge behind a construction barricade, but when Suntag abruptly stood, Whitman shot him in the mouth, killing him instantly. God. In the mouth. Like I said, like his shot is yeah. so precise. And it, it's just, 
they're just kids like going to class, going to lunch. I know. Doing fucking middle of day at a university. Yeah. They're just It's just a day. It's August first. Classes I guess at this time maybe just resumed because I mean school doesn't start that early now, but I don't know school timetables then, but no. there were clearly enough people on campus. Um, so Rut tried to reach Suntag and Weber attempted to restrain her. And that's when a shot passed through Weber's left hand and struck Rut in the chest. So one bullet got both of them. Suntag's grandfather, KTBC News Director Paul Bolton, learned of his grandson's death as the victim's names were recited on air that day. Roy Smith took cover with others behind his car about 500 yards from the tower But after about 30 minutes, he stood up um, in the belief that they were out of the range and he was immediately shot in the abdomen. He was the fatality furthest from the tower. So 500 yards. That's about 500 meters or 1500 feet, which is a quarter mile. Yeah, it's far. At 12.08 p.m., Billy Speed, who was an officer, he was with another officer and a few others behind decorative balusters on the South Mall when he was shot through a gap in the masonry. Oh my god. He soon died after at the hospital. This is one of those sharpshooters that's terrifying. Like, this is the type of person that knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly how to use a gun. And it's probably part of why he had so many different ones. He knew how to use them. This was not an amateur that was just like, I'm going to buy all these different guns and I'm going to bring them. We're going to see what happens. This was a shoot. He had a a plan. Yeah. This was a marksman. He was like basically a sniper. Yeah. Like he knew what he was doing and his shot was accurate. Like beyond belief. Like this is between the masonry. He shot him. About noon... Harry Walchuk was leaving a magazine street on Guad when he was shot in the chest. Billy Snowden, believing that he was out of range, was struck in the shoulder while standing in a barbershop doorway. He was over 500 yards away, and he was the victim furthest from the tower. So not fatality, He's, but he victim. So, he was the basketball coach, oh, by uh, the way. Sandra Wilson was shot in the chest. Abdul... Kashab was an exchange student from Iraq, and Paulos, his fiance, were both shot near Guad and 24th Street. Lana Phillips believed she was out of range, but was shot in the shoulder. Oscar Royvela and Irma Garcia, his girlfriend, were shot near Hogg Auditorium. Students Jack Stevens and Jack Pennington dragged them both to safety. A shot struck Avelino Esparza's left arm near the shoulder, shattering the bone. His brother and uncle dragged him to safety. Robert Hurd, who was a press reporter and veteran Marine, was shot in the arm. Jack Allen was looking at the tower through a window in the student union when a bullet struck the window, followed by a second shot which severed an artery in his right forearm. A man named Morris Homan, who was a funeral director, was using his business's ambulance to take victims to the hospital when he was shot in the right leg at the corner of 23rd and Guad. He later recalled, I laid there for about 40 to 45 minutes, listening to two construction workers arguing about who was going to expose themselves to recover me. F.L. Foster and Robert Fred were wounded in the crossfire between Whitman and those shooting from the ground, so the the police. Mm -hmm. Della and Marina Martinez, who were visiting from Monterey, Mexico, were both wounded by bullet fragments. 
Dolores Ortega suffered a cut on the back of her head, either from flying glass or a direct hit. Fuck. And C.A. Stewart was not shot, but was injured in the commotion on campus. That is so many people. It is. It's so many people, and it happened for so long. Um, this entire attack was ended up being 90 minutes. Um, and the fact that it's it's 90 minutes of him sitting in one spot and just hitting people one just by one, just shooting. Mowing people down. God. Yeah. So as this was happening, some people mistook the sound of shots um, and the noise as construction from a, a site that was nearby. Um, yeah. Or they thought that the people falling to the ground were part of a theater group or an anti-war protest. They didn't know they were being shot. Yeah. Again, in the same way that I mean, the guy the leaving the observation tower was thinking, ah, oh, dude has a gun in the tower to get rid of pigeons. Their, their first thought when hearing what sounds like gunshots on a campus is not gunshots on a campus. Exactly. Because that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't happen. No. Um, one victim recalled that as she lay bleeding, a passerby reprimanded her and told her to get up. Because they didn't know it was yeah. real. They thought it was like theater. Yeah. Among those who understood the situation and what was going on, many risked their lives to take the wounded to safety. Um, an armored car and ambulances from local funeral homes, like I was mentioning um, about Morris earlier, were used to reach the wounded and take them to safety. Four minutes after Whitman began shooting from the tower, a history professor was the first to telephone the Austin Police Department at 11.52 a.m. Mm-hmm. Patrolman Billy Speed was one of the first officers to arrive, um, and he was the one that was shot yeah. um, behind the stone wall. And it was actually just a, I should have mentioned this earlier, it was a six-inch opening that he was shot through. Jesus. Six inches. Um, Officer Houston McCoy, who was 26, heard of the shooting on his radio. He looked for a way into the tower, and a student offered to help, saying he had a rifle at home. So McCoy drove the student to his home to retrieve the rifle. Yeah. Alan Crum, a 40-year-old retired Air Force tail gunner, was a manager at the University Bookstore Co-op, which I know you've seen that. It's the huge bookstore that is right across the street from campus. Yeah. Um, he, you know, across the street on campus, he saw a 17-year-old newspaper boy being dragged and went to break up what he thought was a fight. And this was um, Alex Hernandez. So he thought there was a fight going on, but then when he gets there, he learned that the boy had been shot, and he started hearing more shots, and he rerouted street traffic out of harm's way. So he's, like, making sure no one's driving in the way. He was unable to make his way back into the store safely, and so he made his way to the tower, where he offered to help the police. Once inside the tower, he accompanied Department of Public Safety agent Dove Cohen and Austin PD officer Jerry Day up the elevator. Cohen provided Crumb with a rifle. So this bookstore owner's like, with the cops, help yeah. him out, got a rifle. He's a former Marine. He's gonna... Yeah, well, he was an Air Force tail gunner. Like, he knows Air Force how to, tail gunner. He knows how to use a gun. He knows how to use a gun, and he knows to protect his people. And right Absolutely. now, everyone in Austin that day are his people. Yes. So around noon, Officer Ramiro Ray Martinez was off duty at home when he heard about the attack on the news. He called the police station and was instructed to go to campus and direct traffic. Once he was there and he found other officers already doing that, he went to the tower. He's like, oh no, traffic's taken care of. I'm going to where the help is needed. Yeah. He assumed he would find a team of officers there, 
But when he reached the 27th floor, he found only Cohen, Crum, and Day. So three officers. And he's like, oh, okay. I'll be number four. Officers attempting to reach the tower were forced to move slowly and take cover often. You know, slowly up the stairs. But a small group of officers, including Houston McCoy, began making their way to the tower via underground maintenance tunnels. Oh. So there was a hidden way to get there. Officers and several civilians provided suppressive fire from the ground with small weapons and hunting rifles, which forced Whitman to stay low and to fire through storm drains at the foot of the observation's deck wall. Oh my god. A police sharpshooter in a small plane was driven back by Whitman's return fire, but continued to circle at a distance, seeking to distract Whitman and further limit his freedom to choose targets. So they're just, they're shooting at him, they they're keeping him hidden. flying around the tower. Go yeah, on. they're trying to just distract him and keep him from shooting people. What? I mean, the city of Austin was like under siege. Essentially, because this was the tallest building and he was just able to reach people at such far distances. So Martinez, Crum, and Day searched the 27th floor where they found MJ Gabor. Day removed him. Martinez started up the stairs to the observation deck and Crum insisted on covering him, asking Martinez to deputize him first. He's like, please deputize me. I want to cover you, man. Yeah. Um, Beneath the stairwell leading to the reception area, Martinez found... Margaret Lamport, Mark Gabor, Mike Gabor, and Mary Gabor, which, as you remember, was the family that was visiting um, Austin. Yeah. Mike gestured to the observation deck, saying, he's out there. Martinez reached the observation deck first. He told Crum to remain at the door. McCoy and Day reached the observation deck a few minutes later. Day, after helping MJ Gabor, had returned to the 27th floor. He realized Martinez had gone up the observation deck and told McCoy. At some point, Crum accidentally fired his rifle. Around 1.24 p.m., while Whitman was looking south for the source of the rifle shot, Martinez and McCoy rounded the northeastern corner of the observation deck. Martinez fired on Whitman with his revolver, missing, and then McCoy hit Whitman twice with a shotgun, killing him. After Whitman was shot and killed by McCoy, Martinez then took McCoy's shotgun from him, having emptied his own weapon, and fired another shot into Whitman's body at point-blank range. Martinez then ran from the scene yelling, I got him, I got him. In the immediate aftermath, Martinez was nearly shot himself by those on the ground who did not yet realize Whitman was dead. Yeah. I mean, they just hear gunshots from the tower still. Yeah, yeah. And, and they so, see a man up there. Yeah. Well, again, and it's like police and civilians and like just well, lots of people. Over 300 feet tall. Yeah. I mean, it's. So in the 90 minute shooting spree, Whitman had killed 16 and injured at least 31. Fuck. So following the shootings, the tower observation deck was closed. All the various bullet holes were repaired and the tower was reopened in 1968. And then it was closed again in 1975, following four suicides. After a stainless steel lattice and other security features were installed, it was again reopened in 1999. So that's a very, very long period of time. It was closed, 75 to 99. But at this time, it was only appointment-only guided tours, and all visitors were screened by metal detectors. Yeah. In 2006, a memorial garden was dedicated to those who had died or who were otherwise affected. And a monument listing the names of the victims was added in 2016 on the shooting's 50th anniversary. And also, they made that day um, Roy Martinez Day yeah. in Austin. 
So back just a couple years ago. So you can still, I didn't know you can go up there. Today. Guided tour, I think. Yeah. Um. Now what it takes to get a guided tour, couldn't tell you. Yeah. I'm sure there's limitations to that. Um. I don't know about you, but I don't really know if I'd want to be up there. Not really. Um. So an autopsy after Whitman's death revealed a brain tumor in his hypothalamus. Mm-hmm. that appeared to be pressing on his amyg- amygdala, a subcortical region associated with aggression. Oh. So. He had a brain tumor. Yeah. I don't even know if you could say whether it is or isn't. I know. I started to say not that that's the reason, but how do you know? Yeah. You don't know. Um, You know, he had tried to seek professional help. And I don't know, he, he was having dreams about doing this and then something happened and he just did it. So um, that's the UT tower shooting. And I knew a lot about this one. I didn't know that much about this. I didn't know that much. I knew of the, just the sniper in the tower thing. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what I knew. And I will say, this is so sad that we both picked school shootings because it's like, When you look up mass shootings, that's what comes up. Yeah. I mean, it's other than the Las Vegas shooting and the shooting, the Pulse shooting in Orlando in 2016, a lot of the big ones are schools. Yeah. It's just so unfortunate. So, um, postmortem? Yeah. I don't know. How do we even begin this? I I, I don't know. Well... This was clearly, sorry, this was clearly an episode that I I think you can tell just emotionally affected us a lot more than a lot of our cases, which, I mean, every case we cover is horrible, but they are. These just hit so close to home. I think it's because it's still happening at such an accelerated rate. I mean, yeah, it seems as if nothing is being done you your case happened in 1966 and if you if i didn't know anything about it and you said it happened in 2019 sure i know i mean it it's more likely to happen now than it did then well i will say i think um this episode should go to you because there is so much that has come out of that granted with this one being in 66 a lot came out of it as well but a lot of the things that have come out of the parkland shooting are happening right now and there's room for for us you know as a people today to be a part of this and to be a part of this mission we can directly take action because of these shootings and we can do that now so that maybe my kids or you know children that are being born now won't Maybe they'll just see an active shooter drill as just another drill that, like, is a, like a fire drill that you don't really ever have to think about. Yeah. And not as something that could happen to them at any moment. Well, and that's the thing. When you think of all these big decisions that you're making politically and how you're voting, yeah, some of them may affect you. But the majority of them, you're doing them for the next generation. Yeah. You're not doing them for your generation. It's just... You have to be future thinking, knowing that policies do take time and the amount that it's going to affect your life, it's not a lot. It's the next life that it's going to affect. The the fact that there is something we can do right now, there are laws that can be enacted right now 
that can save thousands of lives. Because there were over 40,000 gun deaths in the United States in 2017 alone. That's just the statistic I find recently. Yeah. And we're literally sitting on making laws and making changes to existing laws that, yeah, are not going to be able to stop every gun death. But if we cut it in half, let's what just go with in half. 20,000 people a year. That would be such an accomplishment, even to just half that number, even to fourth that number and say yeah. 10. It's just so many people are dying and they shouldn't be. Absolutely. I mean, 3,000 people died on September 11th, almost six times that amount die every year from guns. Yeah. And we can literally do something about that now. And it's a, it's it's our responsibility to do that because regardless of your beliefs, political affiliation, whatever, we all want less people to die of course. at the hands due to gun violence. Of course. And we could do something about that because, oh, oh my God, that sucks. Mm, I'll pray for you. That doesn't that doesn't cut it. No, that's not an action. Yep, that's not enough, and it can't be enough moving forward. Well, so um, this has been very very intense episode. Um, I will pick the topic next week, and you'll pick our wine. Yeah. Um, it'll be good. You haven't done that in a while. It's true. Yeah, I haven't, which will be good because after this. I don't want to pick the next topic. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. But make sure to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Let us know what you think and um, leave us a rating. Leave us uh, comments. Just let us know. Um, And also, like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, which is definitely our most active. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, yeah, there's not yeah. another one. <laughs> no, that's our social. But um, I don't know about you, but I definitely need another drink after this. So that's what I'm going to go do. Yep, absolutely. I but, could use another one. These two uh, bottles weren't enough for this topic. Nope. But, so thank you all so much for listening. We love you all so much. Yes. Uh, but this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.